This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. Welcome back to another episode of HR in a Review. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Kevin Martin, who joined the Institute for Corporate Productivity, otherwise known as the I4CP, in 2012 as its Chief Research Officer. Kevin has nearly three decades of experience in the human capital management industry, with the last 15 years focused on building and managing industry-leading research organisations. Today, our focus is on a major trend that we're expecting to see in 2023 flexibility and how the new normal and the hybrid world has changed what we mean by that term. We look at flexibility in the grander sense as well, considering what flexible packages look like at an organisational level across different sectors. Hi Kevin, it's great to have you join us on the HR In Review podcast today. How are you? Amelia, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. So firstly, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what your organisation does? Sure, it'd be a privilege. Uh, so I'm the head of research for a company called the Institute for Corporate Productivity. We're known basically as the acronym I4CP. Uh, we have been around literally for four decades as an organization. We started out as an academic think tank called the Human Resource Institute. And then we became a uh, for-profit research firm, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, about 17 years ago. Uh, we are a pure human capital research firm, Amelia. And uh, we produced, we believe, more research in the space of human capital than any firm on the planet. And what makes our research unique is that we look through the, we always look at the people side of the business, the critical intangibles like culture, leadership, et cetera. But we always do it through the lens of the business. So everything that we're able to research, we correlate back to the last five years of growth among the organizations that are represented in our studies. And that's growth in revenue, profitability, customer satisfaction, and market share. Great. Thanks for that, Kevin. Um, so today, obviously, we're talking about flexibility and how flexibility may look at an organizational level in 2023. So I guess a good starting point for us today would be, you know, what do you think some are the biggest ch- changes and developments we've been seeing over the last two years regarding flexibility in the workplace? Oh, wow. I mean, that is such an explosive question because we've seen a ton. But I really think, Amelia, that there's really two areas that that sum it up. One is the attitude towards flexibility and work. And what we're seeing is a shift from viewing flexibility as a concession you know, hey, it's a privilege among the few, we'll occasionally allow it, maybe it's viewed more as a benefit, to flexibility as a strategy. And what we really believe is that the best organizations, those that are going to be lasting, those that are very resilient and perform the best over the long term, are really going to leverage that as flexibility. In fact, um, a couple of summers ago, I wrote an article in the Financial Times on this very topic, and one of the executives I quoted in it um, is Jeff Clark. He's the chief operations officer at Dell. And I love what he said, because I think it sums it up nicely, which is COVID-19 has made one thing clear. Work is something you do, an outcome, not a place or a time. And that is so spot on. The other thing that we're seeing is that companies are starting to open their aperture when it comes to flexibility. What I mean by that is 
you know, if it was a privilege, it was a privilege for someone working out of a corporate office before. It was never really something that companies thought about for people who are line workers, who are on the floor with customers, let's say, you know, your hourly workers, your productive work, your production workers, even union workers. And I love this uh, example just um, here in the United States, CSX Transportation, one of the major rail uh, railroads in our country. Um, under their new leadership, they have a brand new CEO, Joe Henricks, who came from Ford Motor Company, but they just negotiated with their top two unions to allow these union workers to have four days of paid sick leave, which is pretty much unheard of in that industry. And that's how those are two of the biggest changes we're seeing. Yeah, great. You know, exactly. It's super interesting. And as you said, thinking about flexibility as a strategy is great. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm sure also that when thinking about flexibility, uh, a lot of our listeners are also considering the notion of productivity alongside it, right? Um, so, you know, how do you think flexibility affects our, our productivity? What I, what I love about that question around flexibility and productivity, because you hear it increasing right now out there in the news cycle. And I really believe that What's happening here, Amelia, is a lot of executives, um, especially those that are late Gen Xers or baby boomers, they grew up in the workplace. They feel comfortable leading in the workplace, and they're looking for any reason at all to bring their workers back to the workplace. You know, our research, we just conducted a major global study on culture fitness. And one of the key findings from that study um, is that where organizations over the past year whose workers were mostly on site, we actually saw a dip in productivity, so a decrease in productivity, whereas organizations where workers were mostly remote, just looking at that remote, we saw an increase in productivity, but even more importantly, we saw a dramatic increase in overall workforce well-being. And there is a very strong correlation between workforce well-being and overall productivity um, as well. Great. Well, kind of leading on from that then, don't you think that innovation might might suffer when people aren't working together on a face-to-face -face basis? Going back to the data here, <laughs> our research has shown that innovation actually doesn't. Now, what I, I don't want to sound Pollyannish here, Amelia. You know, I think it's so company-specific. For instance, I remember a com two conversations I had with heads of human resources. One was from an organization headquartered in Europe. The other one was from an organization headquartered in Canada. And this, uh, these were two distinct conversations, but one was um, from someone who said, hey, you know what, what we have found actually is that we have greater, and the data shows it, we have greater innovation when our people are coming together working on site. And their data proves that. Now, that company also does something that I think is instrumentally important. They are very intentional about when they bring people back on site and who they're bringing them back on site and for what purpose they're bringing them back on site for. So it's not just to work there and get the same work done they could have done, um, you know, sitting from their home office. They want to bring people together for specific collaborative purposes. And in this case, it was ideation and creativity that leads to innovation. Now, in the same week, I had a conversation with someone over in Europe, and here's what they said. We have surveyed our employees and our what we have noticed, actually, 
is that they've had no dip in innovation. They had an increase in innovation, but they had an increase when they continued to allow people just to innovate remotely. And they actually, here's what they found when they surveyed their workers. Their workers said, when we travel globally to go together to meet, to innovate, because we're coming from so many different time zones, we're exhausted let alone the other mental anguish that they were going through by, let's say, um, you know, not being there for their family, um, especially single parents, let's say. And what they were able to do, they found that the workers, and these are the workers' comments, we felt we feel more refreshed, we're able to create and innovate more effectively when we're working remotely because we don't have that other taxing from the, from the travel. So it's very company specific, but it's also, um, you know, all, oftentimes people relegate their definition of innovation to just product, Amelia. And I think that's a, a very narrow way to think about it. We've done tremendous research on innovation and you've got to think about business model innovation, business process innovation, and think about how every organization on the planet was forced to innovate as a result of the pandemic. They moved their workers off site. They started leveraging digital more. And so many organizations said that the pandemic facilitated their move to digital so much more rapidly than if they, if they didn't have that, let's say, burning platform. So innovation is not proximity laden or tied to proximity. It's really look at your data, listen to your workers and if you find that you need to bring them on site to innovate, do so very intentionally. Yeah, I love that idea of, you know, innovating remotely, Kevin, and also kind of getting the getting away from the idea of innovation being tied specifically, you know, just to the office. Um, so in that case, then, as you've just explained, that innovation has actually increased over the past year. Um, do you consider flexible work to be rather fair then? Well, here, here's the thing. If Flexibility, here's what we know from our research. It's very clear. And I think this is probably one of the most important things that any listener to this podcast comes away from. Flexibility done well requires intentionality. And I'll expound upon that a little bit. But, but here's a good example of it. Every organization wants to avoid creating cultures of haves versus have-nots. And this gets back to one of the trends that you know I alluded to earlier or mentioned that we're seeing around flexibility, it's that shift in mindset that flexibility can actually be applied to a hourly worker or someone who's on site. And so I think the, one of the most important things here is organizations need to think beyond the where when it comes to flexibility, and they need to start thinking about the when and the how work gets done. Um, there was another study done, not by my firm, but by another firm. And for the first time in the history of this research, so they come out with this every year for the past 16 years, and it's the largest in the United States, it's the largest survey of hourly workers. And what they found, Amelia, is that for the first time in 2022, among the top three reasons why someone, an hourly worker, both accepts a job and decides to stay in a job is shift and schedule flexibility and predictability. And so again, is flexible work fair? 
it is if you design it to be that way. Okay, great. So kind of keeping on that that notion of fairness then, um, what about salaries? Um, over here in the UK, a leading law firm, uh, Stevenson Harwood, and I believe they're not the only law firm actually, or firm in general, uh, cut their pay by about 20% uh, for staff wanting to work from home full time. Um, so do you think flexible workers should should receive lower salaries then? or? I love that example that you brought up about Stevenson Harwood, and not, not to pick on them, but if they're cutting their remote workers' salary by 20%, here's their question they need to, to ask themselves. Are they going to be okay if those workers decrease their billable hours and the quality of their, uh, uh, their output by 20%? I mean, seriously, it, it's a similar discussion that we see organizations having around um, if workers, if we decide that we're going to allow someone to work remotely and that worker for quality of life purposes decides to move from one geography to another, like here in the United States, if they move from a high cost of living state like California to a low cost of living state like Ohio, should those companies decrease their salary proportionately as well? Well, you know what? The answer that we have found is that if you want to lose them and you want to and you want to create more boundaries to why people would want to join your firm, you go right ahead and keep doing that. There's my answer, Amelia. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I know you've just touched on there the idea that if the work gets done, then, you know, what is the difference really between whether that's done in the office or not, right? Um, but then you can also ask, what about the implications of flexibility on culture? And, and you know, in that sense, what, what do leaders need to be, to be mindful of, really? Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. Well, here, here's the thing. Leaders have to be mindful of a lot. Because the culture basically is what people experience working at their firm, right? It's, what, it's what's rewarded. It's what's condoned. Importantly, it's what's tolerated. And the, when, when an organization looks at its culture, the leaders need to foremost look in the mirror because it's a reflection of how they lead. What our research found, and this comes out of our brand new research, Amelia, is that Culture health, the health of a culture, actually explains nearly 20% of the increased productivity that firms have experienced over the past two years. We also found, and I've written about this, that culture health can serve as a valuable new proxy for productivity. And so when it comes to regarding leaders, I think the critical thing that leaders need to buy into and understand is the role that they play in ensuring the, the culture that's needed to support the strategy. So it doesn't matter, for instance, whether the strategy involves digitization, a move to hybrid or flexible work, or maybe even sustainability. That's, that's, that's red hot right now. What matters is that the corporate leadership and the board of the company intentionally and explicitly acts to shift the culture in parallel with any strategic shift. It's critical that the strategy supports the purpose of the company. In other words, why the company does what it does. That's the purpose. 
and that the company's talent, including its leadership, are aligned with both the purpose and the strategy. And the glue, and this is really important, the glue that binds the purpose, the strategy, and the talent is the firm's culture. And now one of the things I didn't mention before and I think is really critical, Amelia, is this. We believe very much that what's going to distinguish effective leaders going forward is their ability to manage the outcomes. That way you're not measuring time, you're not looking at visibility and proximity, but instead you're being clear with everyone what's expected and that outcome could be building a critical relationship. It could be ideating on a product. It could be getting something out on time or, of course, you know, high uh, you know, productive output, whatever that might be. But it's critical that these managers manage to those outcomes, not to the inputs that go into that. Hopefully that makes sense. Makes more than sense to me. <laughs> and, you know, it's very interesting what you're saying about cultural health there, which, you know, from my perspective... Uh, really encompasses getting the balance right between when employees need to be in the office or or not really. Um, so focusing on what you said then about strategy, when do you think employees need to be face to face? I assume it's probably quite situational and specific to each organization. Yeah, hundred percent, Amelia. I, I think the 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 simple answer is this: they need to be face to face when it makes sense for them to be face to face. You know, just go back to what I talked about before. Flexibility done well requires intentionality. So think about this. Think about the worker. And I had, this is from a conversation I had with a head of HR from a company based in India recently. Many of their workers live in, a, in very clustered urban settings where they are wor- living also with extended family. And they are living in very small dwellings. And there may or may not be internet connectivity. It's not possible for those people to work on site. And I would venture this, that for their own sanity, (laughs) they probably need and want to be off-site. So a lot of these firms smartly are building hubs that are closer to their workers so their workers don't spend an hour in crazy traffic in one of those urban clustered areas trying to get to a place to work, they can now go by bicycle or by foot for 20 minutes and get to their place of work, but they can be there. They can get their work done effectively. On the other hand, you've got people in similar situations uh, where they live in in their uh, home, let's say ample space for a home office. They've got a nice quiet setup. And um, they are just more than happy to save that time in a commute and they can get everything they need done effectively. Great. Let them work offsite. However, think about this from an intentionality standpoint. What about that worker who's young in their career or new to the company and they may be able equipment wise and technologically um, to get everything they need to get done uh, working from home, but they need critical relationships. They need to understand, they need maybe some apprenticeship to be able to see how work gets done. It makes a lot of sense upfront for them to come on site to build those relationships. But again, this is all about being very intentional. So uh, when does it make sense for them to be on site? when it makes sense for them to be on site. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, it's also really um, interesting. You touched on, you know, the idea of the commute. And I think that notion of the commute has really changed now post-COVID. I mean, maybe that's one great benefit of COVID, at least, that, you know, we've got that work-life balance a little bit better. 
But, you know, focusing on our predictions for, for this year then, do you perhaps have a prediction about whether flexible work will increase or wane over the next few years even? Yeah, Amelia, I think it all depends on whose lens you're viewing that perspective from. If it comes from the lens of the worker, I have no doubt that it's going to increase. The demand for control and flexibility will continue to rise. This is a decades-old trend we've been seeing in our research and calling out to the organizations that are in our member network that get our research. For the last 10 years, we've been saying worker demand for control and flexibility and where, when, and how work gets done, including what, the type of work that they work on. However, there's also the lens of the corporate executive. You know, take, for example, um, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon. He's been very, very vocal and clear that work gets done on site at J.P. Morgan Chase. You are expected to be on site all the time. Now, he's got his own rationale for that. I would suggest that's not the right approach. Our research found that flexibility over rigidity when it comes to hybrid work, et cetera, or work in general is a much stronger, uh, more strategic way of attracting and retaining and getting productivity out of your workforce. However, you look in the same industry at Jane Fraser from City. She's the CEO of City. She's taken a different approach. She's embraced hybrid work where she wants, she's been listening to their workers. She knows their workers are saying, I can get as much done, if not uh, more done um, and as well offsite. In fact, the quality of my well-being and life is better as well. But she, they're doing a very good job of measuring productivity, engaging who needs to come back on site. And they recently talked about how workers that were their underperformers they found who were working offsite needed to come back on site for a little bit more apprenticeship work, etc. Um, for them to then be able to effectively work off-site. So again, I think it comes from the lens, but without a doubt, from our perspective, as I mentioned before, one of our predictions for this year is that the companies that are going to be on the cutting edge and setting themselves up best for long-term viability, sustainability, um, resiliency, those are the ones that are going to embrace, going to embrace flexibility as strategy versus that of a concession. Yeah, I really agree with you here. You know, I definitely think it's a trend that's not going to go away. Um, hopefully not at least, especially uh, if we move forward in light of this notion of, you know, moving with intentionality. But to wrap up our conversation here then, I have two questions for you that we ask everyone on the HR in Review podcast. So the first one, if you could pass on one crucial lesson you've learned in your career in one minute or less, what would be your top tip for HR pros? Simple. Uh, ensure that everything HR does is has a very clear, thick line back to business strategy. If it's opaque, if it's dotted, if it's uh, undiscernible, you need to re-question why you're doing that in the first place and whether it needs to get done. Here are some questions the best HR uh, executives constantly are asking. In fact, the best executives ask this every time that there is a shift in strategy. Number one, what must be true for our strategy to succeed? And you have to be very diligent on that. Be very brutally honest with your answer. Then ask yourself, will our culture enable or impede our strategy? 
And how must our culture shift or, or support that shift in strategy? Also, how will we know that shift is happening? We call it renovation. You can call it shift, whatever it is. And then you should be asking yourselves as a leader, how will we as leaders adopt how we lead in order to model the capability and mindset needed to support the culture that's needed to advance the strategy going forward? Great. Thank you. And secondly, what is the single biggest change you think will happen in HR over the next five to 10 years? Well, I'll tell you what. I believe very much, and we put this forth as a, as a prediction, if you think back to everything every HR executive constantly says, um, which is we need to make sure that we're aligned more to the business, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? The best HR leaders are completely aligned with the business. But one thing that we've noted is this, that hardly any HR leader has significant experience working outside of HR, Amelia. They come up through HR and their lens on the business is through HR. We believe and we predict that there will be a shift in the development of HR executives. In fact, even business line leaders, as they move up in the organization, we anticipate for them getting a shift into HR just to experience it and realize what goes into it, the complexities of it, never to be an expert because it's such a discipline um, in HR. But also, we believe very much that the rotation of HR executives as they grow and mature outside of HR into a functional area you know, uh, of the business to better understand the business, how it makes money, how it generates value, et cetera, will be instrumental to equipping that next generation of HR to be completely lockstep with the business, driving the types of insights that really lead the business um, as well. So that's one that we believe um, is going to uh, distinguish the best from the not so best going forward. Well, that's fab. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kevin. It was really great to have you on. I love it, Amelia. And I love that it was fab. If anything, I'm going to tell my kids now that dad is fab. And I appreciate that. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.